Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so it's only the second Sunday in, and it turns out that uh, 2021 is not off to such a, a hot start. Uh, Associate Pastor Matt Anderson on his Facebook uh, wall, he has a picture, uh, this, this joke that says that there's a one-month trial period uh, uh, for 2021, and I think as of now, on February 1st, I will not be renewing, uh, I will not be renewing my membership in this year. Now, just from the outset, I want to say that this sermon is going to have a, a little bit of a very special episode uh, vibe to it, um, because the events of Wednesday were such an utter disgrace, um, played out on a national scale, uh, that I pastorally feel compelled to address them. And, and they do actually illustrate um, what God's Word has to say to us 
today. In fact, uh, uh, the themes of what I was thinking about as I was really wrestling with, with what struck me from this passage, which is actually the advice that John gives to the tax collectors and to the soldiers, that was a part of the passage that was speaking to me the most. This actually resonates with, I think, and perfectly illustrates um, some of the things that we saw demonstrated on Wednesday. Now, I have a good example for um, this, this kind of sermon that I'm about to give and kind of reflection I'm about to, to offer. When I was uh, 16 years old, all the way back in 1998, those were simpler times in this world, all the way back in 1998, I was sitting out there in these very pews. I was sitting when my pastor, uh, the late and the great Reverend Donald McNair, he read a letter from the pulpit uh, stating what, that he had sent to the White House, uh, stating why he believed that uh, then-President Bill Clinton should resign. And the letter stated that the president, through his conduct and then his lying, had abused his authority, and that uh, his conduct had then disgraced the office of president. And Pastor Don was 100% correct in everything he said, and I know it took chutzpah to do what he did. Now, he had been pastor for, you know, uh, a long time at that point. He had built a lot of credibility up at that point. But, but, but I know it still took guts to do what he did. And I don't know what kind of feedback he got. I never asked him about it. Um, and, and, you know, even though he was a beloved figure in the church, and, and even though, you know, the church was, was a, a theologically uh, conservative one, um, it, it was mixed politically. Always has been. And, uh, but Pastor Don said, despite of that, he got up there and he said, uh, with clarity and conviction that character matters, especially in our leaders, character matters. And even when we disagree on, on policy, we can all agree on that. Now, our passage begins with a, a list of a bunch of, of political leaders. It's really the introduction to, to, to the figure of John the Baptist, but then the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It starts with this list of political leaders and then a couple of religious leaders. And so what this signals to us is that the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist. Jesus' ministry started. You know, not once upon a time, not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but in, in the real world, filled as it is with Caesars and Herods and Pilots and Annases and Caiaphases, people like Caesar, who though he was merely a man, w w w was, was heralded as a god in many parts of the empire and actually inspired a, a cult of personality around him. People like Herod Antipas, a morally corrupt, as we see from the end of our passage, a, a morally corrupt fail son who owed everything that he had. His name, his wealth, his position in society. He owed everything that he had in this world to the successes of his father. He had built nothing and inherited everything. People like Pontius Pilate, who, who was known from, from historical sources, but also from the Bible, for being cruel, and who valued order above law. And, and for Pilate, the cruelty was always the point. And then there were people like Annas and Caiaphas, who were the, the high priestly elite, 
who had turned the temple from what it was supposed to be, a house of prayer for all nations, into what Jesus would later call a den of thieves. They had desecrated God's house. And so the socio-political, the the religio-cultural forces of John's day were all crying out for reform, for replacement, even for revolution. Particularly if you're a faithful Jew, you would survey the situation around you and you would cry out like Isaiah in chapter 64 where he says, Oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So John went out into the wilderness and he preached the coming of God's kingdom, the nearness of God's kingdom and God's king to a people who knew the world was broken and who were desperate beyond measure for God to come and fix it. And John preached with with courage and with conviction and passion. I mean, look what he says. He says to the crowds, the crowds come out to him to hear him preach. And he says to the crowds, not, not, not in Luke, to any particular group of people, but to the crowds in general, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, can you imagine if I began a sermon Like that, I don't think I'd last long. Listen up, jerks. It's not a way to win friends and influence people. But John was telling the truth. And there's something so potent and so powerful about someone who just speaks the truth. But John, he is an exemplar at the beginning of the gospel. Even before Jesus emerges on the scene, he is an exemplar of what a true Christian should be. Because in in his political and his cultural, his religious situation, when people wondered if he was the Messiah, and they put all of these messianic expectations and hopes on him, he said no. He rejected that. In fact, he said, I'm not worthy to untie the Messiah's slave. Someone's coming after me. They're greater than me. So what John demonstrated then and what we need to remember now, the church has always needed to remember in this moment, is that what we need are not leaders with Messiah complexes, not a messianic politics, but the true Messiah. Only Jesus himself will do. Only Jesus. Only he is going to fill that God-shaped hole in our souls. We need the one of whom it says at his baptism, the father says, as the spirit descended like a dove, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We need Jesus first before we need anything else. I mean, look, look at the destruction. And my God, it could have been so much worse. Look at the destruction that Messianic politics have wracked on our country this past week. But it's it's been building and it's been a long time coming. And you could trace it back, I'm sure you could trace it back, decades and decades and decades. But it's been a long time coming. Messianic politics that led a a group of deluded Trump supporters to gather in Washington, D.C. to stop the steal. All because the president is so mendacious, sociopathic, narcissistic, and conspiratorial that he cannot accept the fact that he lost to a near octogenarian in his basement who has, for sure, lost a few miles off of his fastball in the person of Joe Biden. Now, I honestly don't know what's worse, if the president actually believes the lies or if he is just cynically exploiting them. It's like the world's worst choose-it-your-own-adventure. 
And what began as a farce, a farce, became a tragedy and nearly an unspeakable tragedy when he urged his supporters to swarm the Capitol in order to do, honestly, I have no idea what, but clearly to interfere in some way with the constitutionally prescribed process for the orderly and peaceful transfer of power as Congress was gathering and the vice president was gathering to do their job, count and certify the, elect, the votes from the Electoral College. It, it, it is ceremonial, it is symbolic, and almost each and every year it passes by with barely any notice. And the images from Wednesday that we were seeing unfold in real time, and, and Matt and I were in the office, and we both, it's one of those days where we both kind of stopped what we were doing and just watched what we were seeing and couldn't believe what was unfolding and the images that were before us and that we've seen in the subsequent days, right? Images of the Confederate battle flag being, being, being paraded through the hallowed halls of our capital, the capital of our union. A, a man uh, who calls himself Q Shaman in, in a buffalo headdress at, at, on the house dais, a, a guy who looks like a, a poor man's Chip Gaines, smiling as he carried the speaker's podium. But there were, those were the, the goofy images and, and the sad images, but there were more sinister images still of men in military garb with zip-tie handcuffs, presumably looking to take congressional leaders and, and, and the vice president himself hostage, because in order of in fulfilling their constitutional duties, they were supp supp supposedly perpetuating what the president himself referred to as a crime against our democracy and the greatest fraud in American history. Images of the mob that we've seen subsequently chanting, hang Mike Pence. Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, because he had somehow betrayed the president by just doing his constitutionally prescribed job. Images of a police officer screaming in pain as he's crushed against a, a door by a human battering ram. Images, sick images of a woman falling to the ground after she was shot by police and her face turning a sickly gray-green as the last flickers of life drain from her body. And then there's the image we didn't see of, of a police officer dying. And for what? To what end? For what reason? But when you declare our entire political system illegitimate, what should the logical response be? Aren't you justified if that's happening? If this is the greatest fraud and greatest theft in the history of our country, aren't you then justified in using any means necessary to take the reins of power back? Now, just a, a bit of an aside here. It, it's not just, you know, some on the right who do this. There are those on the left of our country who also engage in, in the same kind or a kind of uh, delegitimize, delegitimating rhetoric in order to justify doing whatever they want to. It's a horseshoe theory of politics. And I think that theory has been proven out this year time and again, and last year time and again. 
You know, we heard people walking through Congress, walking through the Capitol going, whose house, our house, whose house, our house. Well, when people were rioting and going crazy this summer, you know what we heard? Whose streets, our streets, whose streets, our streets. And so just as the president precipitated the events this past Wednesday that ended in the shambolic disgrace of an insurrectionary riot, so too I have to say that the pathetic response, especially of this city's leaders, to George Floyd's murder created an environment where murderous mayhem and criminal violence have been allowed to flourish, especially in those parts of the city that already lacked public safety. Now, I'm not saying they're the same thing and they're the same event and they're on the same scale, no. But I would be a coward, a coward if I personally failed to point out the parallels that I see between them. Irresponsible leadership granting a permission structure to lawless violence that delegitimizes the democratic process and our democratic institutions. When you are a leader, your words have consequences. And it is your job, your duty, not to inflame the passions of the mob toward mass destruction, but to cool and to channel those passions towards the mass mobilization. It's also your job not to tell people what you think they want to hear, but to tell the truth. That's what Jacob Fry did, the mayor of Minneapolis, in his jorts when a mob gathered in front of his house. I was talking to Matt about this this week, and you know, he was talking about how, you know, if you think about what Dr. King and the civil rights movement of the 1960s did, it was miraculous. Because that was a mass mobilization, a mass movement of people that was peaceful and nonviolent, passive resistance in the face of a lot of violence. And it was no mistake that it took that form. It took painstaking preparation, training, and so much prayer. So much prayer. But back to matters more at hand. Uh, the President of the United States is who we thought he was. And whether or not he believes the insane lies that he's been peddling since November 4th, he is manifestly unfit in any way, shape, or form to govern this country going forward. And the damage he's done to our polity, it fills me with such disdain and disgust because it, it, it only contributes to the already toxic environment that permeates our nation. And he should resign immediately. If, if he had any dignity and decency, he would resign immediately. And if not, he should be impeached and removed and barred from ever holding federal office again. And I realize that me saying this has as much effect as Michael Scott on The Office when he yelled, I declare bankruptcy! Like, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't work. I know what I'm saying here. It has no practical effect in the world. Uh, but I believe it's something that, as a church leader, I just need to say. And I realize that not everyone's going to agree with me, you know, especially on prudential grounds. But that's what I think. I, I'm, I'm calling it like I seize it at this point. And say what you will about the vice president, Mike Pence. But when the moment of truth arrived, he did the right thing. He did it. Knowing that there was going to be, you know, a political cost to it. He did the right thing. Little did he know that it also might cost him his life. 
but he upheld and he defended the rule of law, which is so, so precious. And it's actually one of the things that that John the Baptist is speaking to this morning when he's talking about fruits that are worthy of repentance. Look at the two groups that come out to him that ask him questions, saying, what then shall we do? What then shall we do in light of your message, John? That, That God is coming back and we need to be ready. What should we do? And the two groups he talks to are tax collectors and soldiers. The representatives of the government that wield, you know, I think the most practical power because these are the people that are coming into regular contact with, with, with the public each and every day. So the abuse of that power, when the tax collector and the soldier abuse their power, it has the most real and deleterious effects on civil society. And anyone who has traveled to a developing country knows that it is just the rampant everyday corruption that holds those places back. You know, when, and those officials are oftentimes, but not limited to, the police. And it's a kind of social rot from, from top to bottom. And, and rooting out that kind of corruption, that kind of everyday, rampant, just, you know, run-of-the-mill corruption, it's one of the great achievements of our political economy over the last 200-plus years. Because when the tax man rips you off, or the policeman shakes you down, or some other public official puts out their hand for a bribe, it serves as a humiliating reminder of your powerlessness and and your lack of agency. And And it breeds distrust, abuse, despair, and desperation. Now, neither John nor Jesus call for an upending of, of, of the civic order. They're not anarchists. They're not political revolutionaries. That doesn't make them any less radical or relevant, only more so in my mind. Because John calls for, for personal integrity from each and every person. It's not just for some, you know, elite, revolutionary, vanguard, elite class or a governing class. But each and every person has to practice personal integrity in discharging their duties as a sign of their changed heart. And he states that the lack of such integrity, the lack of such personal integrity, the abuse of whatever power one has, is an indication that you will not fare well in the coming judgment. And here's the truth. I've been talking a lot about national politics, but this called a personal integrity It's called a using our resources and our influence and our power. It's addressed to each and every one of us today. And each and every one of us should be asking the questions that the tax collectors asked, that the soldiers asked about the coming kingdom of God. In light of that reality, what then shall we do? What should I do? It's not about them. It's about us. And I worry because I know it's so easy and I think so dangerous personally, especially as I'm sort of standing up here and delivering this kind of Jeremiah, that, you know, I'm just going to be like the Pharisee who went to the temple and prayed and looked and saw, you know, the tax collector and the sinner next to him and beat his breast as he prayed and said, thank you, God, you know, thank you that I'm not like them. Thank you so much, Lord. Turn on the TV and look at those fools storming the Capitol and say, thank God I'm not like those bad people. You know, we all have a role to play in in contributing to a more free, a more just, a more prosperous, a more virtuous society. 
And that means not undermining the social order and the institutions of civil society, but building that up. These are precious. They contribute to to human flourishing. And that's what God wants for our world. He blessed Abraham to be a blessing. And blessing is about the flourishing of human life to its God-given ends and potential. And guess what? One of the things that we do to build that up, to build up the institutions of civil society for the blessing of all humankind, fulfilling our vocation given to us by, by, by Abraham and, and sanctified in Jesus Christ, is by participating in a church. Tim Carney of the Washington Examiner, he was uh, covering, as a, as a journalist, he was at the Stop, Stop the Steal rally Wednesday as a reporter. Tim's a conservative And he talked to lots and lots of people. And one of the the themes that he found as he wrote his column uh, was that there was lots of uh, Christian symbols at the the rally. Even lots of kind of Christian-sounding talk in the crowd. But in all of the people he talked to who were doing these things, none of them went to church. They're these kind of cultural Christians. I think kind of like the people who relied on being sons of Abraham that John is so critical of in our passage this morning. They have this kind of culturally Christian identity, while at the same time lacking a Christian community at the local level that would give them hope and meaning and help them to discern truth and falsehood and provide them with wisdom for living and bearing fruits that are worthy of repentance. And instead, these people were being fed lies about a messianic politics and that Trump is a messianic figure who, who will save our republic and that this country is like Flight 93. And so you've got to storm the cockpit before those, you know, socialists crash the whole thing into the ground. Right? These people on Wednesday were indicative. They had found in this messianic politics a, something to fill the God-shaped hole in their hearts. Now, America has its problems but things are not that bad. We're not on the brink of descent, descent into an utter godless you know, communism, nor are we this irredeemably white supremacist country that's on the brink of fascism. We're a broken republic, to be sure. We are filled with little platoons of men and women and children who are doing their best to live out liberty and justice for all. And we need to do our best to support those little platoons of the family, the church, the local school, the life group, uh, the adult kickball league, little league, AA, civic associations. I think this country is worth saving, more than worth saving. And not throwing on the scrap heap or, or crashing to the ground. And the people with whom I have deep ideological, deep theological disagreements are not my mortal enemies. People hearing the sermon and disagreeing with it right now are not my enemies. Now I said we need more of the Messiah and a less messianic politics. And I've been very hard, I think, on the portions, at least, of the political right in the sermon. And I feel a bit like, you know, if you're out there listening, and I feel like there's a danger of just kind of preaching to the choir in this too, though. So let me say that I also believe that there is, on the secular left, the reality is that in many ways, politics has already supplanted religion. It's provided meaning, identity, community, even ethical standards. There's also a a pervasive moralizing and kind of crusading spirit 
that used to be associated in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries with the social gospel movement, but has been excised now, and, and the gospel's been excised from that, and it's been replaced with the spirit of the age. And so the illiberal left certainly is also a threat to a truly free society, as is the authoritarian right. These people, too, have found something, found something else to fill the God-shaped hole in their hearts. Now, Chesterton said presciently this, the whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of conservatives is to prevent the mistakes from being corrected. I guess that, where I'm coming to with all this, at the end of the day, what I yearn for is a complete rejection of the idolatry of politics. I don't want to have to give a sermon like this ever again. It has become the root. John's talking about the root that needs to be cut off in people's life. It's become the root for way too many people. And the fruits that are born from that root are worthy of destruction. They're not worthy of repentance. Those roots deserve to be given the ax. We need to be rooted in something else. Or rather, we need to be rooted in someone else. That's what Jesus' baptism shows that we're rooted in someone else, in something else. If we want to be saved, we've got to be rooted and established in Him and nourished by His life-giving Word and His mind-transforming Spirit. Now, Jesus was completely unlike any of the, the political or the religious leaders that were listed at the beginning of our passage. Instead of standing above people like Caesar, He humiliated Himself and became low, lowering himself into the waters of baptism to fully identify with us. Right? A, 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 a sinless man completely identifying himself with a sinful humanity. The perfectly obedient man identifying himself with rebellious Israel. Instead of being a, a fail son like Herod Antipas or Philip, he is truly God's beloved son. And unlike them, he is no false king, no pretender. He is the true and worthy heir of David, great David's greater son. And unlike Pilate, who reveled in cruelty, Jesus delights in mercy. And unlike Pilate, who, who imposed violence on others, Jesus accepted that on himself. Unlike Annas and Caiaphas, who desecrated the temple... Jesus cleansed and purified it so that, as, as, as that quote from Isaiah says in our passage, all flesh, all flesh would see salvation, God's salvation in him. And so for Christians, baptism is about who we belong to, what are we rooted and established in. And we belong to, who we belong to is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We belong to the one whose voice calls Jesus beloved and because of what Jesus has done for us, we are called beloved too. We belong to the triune God, not a party, not an ideology, not a clique, not a faction, not a leader, not even a form of government or political system. We belong to God, and because we belong to Him, we can live lives of personal integrity that build up instead of tear down 
that, 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 that bless rather than curse, that, that lower rather than raise the temperature, that, 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 that purify and cleanse rather than contribute and add to the toxicity that's all around us. Jesus' baptism, it shows us who we belong to, but, but lastly, it also shows us how we can commune with God, how we can belong to Him. And it's prayer. And Luke alone, out of all the Gospels, notes that at the time of his baptism, Jesus was praying. He prayed. And so let that be a reminder to us to be a people of constant prayer. And so today we pray for our country. We pray for our leaders, including Donald Trump. We pray for those who believe conspiracies and who perpetuate them. Those who hate us. Those who lie and those who believe lies. And we pray for forgiveness for ourselves, for the manifold ways we have fallen short, where we have failed to live with integrity, where we have worshipped idols instead of the true and living God.